There's an attorney who practices in, uh, out here in Malibu. I actually met him, spent some time with him on a Shabbat afternoon. His name is David Stauber. And he has an incredible story with the Rebbe that I think I've shared before in these classes, but it ties beautifully into the theme of tonight's letter. He grew up in orthodox circles and saw some things that uh, young children, impressionable children, shouldn't see within the system of orthodox Judaism, and it caused him to become very skeptical and very aggressive towards, uh, towards orthodoxy. And he grew up and went far away from the fold. He got married. His wife wanted a kosher home, so he kept it just for her. But other than that, he was a completely unaffiliated Jew. In, uh, sometime in the early 1970s, they came out here to California. They met with Rabbi Kunin, the head, the head Chabad rabbi here. And he did something, said something. They had an encounter that caused them to become a little warmer. He still wasn't doing anything, but a little warmer to the concept of, uh, of a Yiddishkeit that he could appreciate. And in 1972 or 73, he went on a trip with his wife to Greece. And while they were vacationing there, they were in a terrible, terrible car accident. His wife uh, broke her back and part of her legs. She became semi-paralyzed and had to go for an emergency procedure there. And at some point, they were able to bring her out <clears throat> back to LA. Rabbi Kunin was there to meet them right when they came. And he helped them in their rehabilitation process. And slowly but surely, she began to recover. She wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe said to, at that time, she should light Shabbat candles and it'll be a it'll be a good omen for her, and she did. And she began to heal, and one week, she missed it, because she was in some kind of center that didn't allow for lighting candles, and her right leg swelled up oh, wow. terribly. And she never missed the Shabbat candle since then. And anyway, after six long months, she was mostly back to herself, and the first thing she wanted to do was visit the Rebbe, to thank him for his blessings. And Rabbi Kunin set it up. The doctors weren't for it but they said, you know, we get it, how important it is to you, so go. And they had an appointment with the Rebbe in Yechidus. The Rebbe was still taking private audiences and all through the night, twice a week, three times a week. And he came along with his wife to accompany her on this trip because she needed help. She still wasn't fully back to herself. And also her father came together for this visit. So it's three people going in and they're online and somebody, apparently one of the Rebbe's secretaries, came over to them and said, you know, before you go into the private audience, you have to write a note. That's the custom. You put your name down, your mother's name, and you have to write a request. And he said, listen, I have no requests. I don't want anything from the Rebbe. I'm here for my wife. She wants to be here. I get it. I respect it. But I have nothing. I, I don't want to write any notes. And the guy became super insistent. He said, if you don't write a note, you can't go in. So he's like, Okay took a note, he puts, you know, my name is this and that, and he writes, if God is so great, why does he insist on all these tiny details? That's what he wrote. He's like, you know, if, if I have to write something, I'll write a question, and it did bother him. He, he had struggled with that. You know, why does God care if you put a meat spoon into the cottage cheese, and you mix it around, you have to kosher it. He, he couldn't figure that out. He was an attorney, right? 
<laughs> so, that, so that's what he writes. <coughs> At any rate, they go into the, to the audience, and the Rebbe greeted them very warmly, and read his wife's note and the father-in-law, and then he read his note. And the Rebbe picked up his head and he said, I don't understand your question. So this guy says, I figured you know, maybe the Rebbe has difficulty with English. So he started to talk in Yiddish, because he grew up with the from, he knew Yiddish. So he starts telling the Rebbe in Yiddish. The Rebbe stops him mid-sentence, raises his hand, says, no, no, I, I, I read your question. But the details are not for God. They're for us. And the Rebbe explained that Hashem is infinite. The world is finite. Hashem is giving us a path. He says, if you go on this path, you'll find me. And in God's great kindness, He didn't just give us one way or one path to find them. He gave us millions and millions of little paths. Every time you fulfill one iota of one law, of one mitzvah, you're on the path to infinity. And it was a radical moment for him because he had never seen Judaism in that way. There's a video of him telling the story and he says he felt like he was in a dark room and someone turned on the light for him. It completely transformed him. He became much, much closer to Yiddishkeit since then. Now he's heavily involved with Chabad where he lives. And uh, he has many, many further stories and encounters with the Rebbe. And it's a wonderful story because it does illustrate what the core of what would seem to be the obsession with details is. It's not an obsession in a way that God wants to micromanage everything that we do. He wants to give us so many, a vast amount of opportunities to get close to Him. And the story stands on its own. The reason that I'm telling it tonight is because I want to draw on a little bit of a different part of the story. And it goes like this. <clears throat> God, of course, is infinite. Infinite means completely beyond anything. Totally perfect. He chose to create a finite world. The universe as we know it, as he created it, is extremely, extremely limited, extremely defined, extremely finite. And of course, throughout the generations, Torah scholars and other scholars have struggled with the question of why. What's the purpose of creation? Why did God do it this way? And ultimately, we believe that there is no answer, satisfying answer to the why. It's, the reason for creation is as illogical as God himself. Yet, we do observe something very powerful that can only exist within the context of a finite world. And that is that if you think about it, infinity can be so perfect as to become meaningless. When you're omniscient, omnipresent, everywhere, at all times, in all spaces, and you have complete perfection, it can get kind of boring. Too good, almost. And what finity or limitation provides is a balance. When infinity reaches the finite, when the limited accesses what it can of the limitless, a harmony is created that can only be created when you have both elements of infinity and finite. So there's something magnificent <clears throat> that takes place only within the space of 
a confined reality. And the Alter Rebbe in this letter, at least in the first half of the letter, makes the case that we should celebrate that. Instead of looking at the limitation of our world as a weakness, we should look at it as a vehicle to beauty. It's an opportunity for us to provide to the infinite that which he couldn't have on his own. And that's why limitation is so embedded in every level of existence, not just the physical element of existence, but even the spiritual dimensions of existence. Even where Torah and mitzvahs, which is the pinnacle of spirituality, interfaces with the world, it does so in a very limited way. So of course, the physical universe as we observe it is going to be very limited. Everything is bound by time and space. But even Torah and mitzvahs, which are godly in essence, when they come into the world's atmosphere, they assume uh, a defined reality. The Alter gets very specific. He says, first of all, Torah and mitzvahs in general are physical. Tzitzis, you know, these are physical wool. We make it into strands. Tefillin is physical leather. Uh, sacrifices were physical animals. Tzedakah is physical money. Torah is, is very physical. Torah and mitzvahs are very physical. More so, within the physicality, every mitzvah gets a, gets a very strict box. It's like you would think, okay, we're doing, we're doing physical tzitzis. Okay, let me do it however I want. No. The tzitzis have to be a certain amount in length. And he names it. Twelve thumb breadths. The, the, the width of one edge of the thumb to the other, 12 of those is how long the tzitzit strands have to be. And at tefillin, they have to be square and they have to be a certain amount, you know, finger breadths this way and that way. And um, well, a lulav, you know, it's got to be four, four hand breadths tall. A whole bunch of examples. A sukkah, it's got to be seven hand breadths this way and that way. A shofar has to be able to fit into your wrist. And everything has a number. Everything, you know, a mikvah has to have 40 uh, se'ah, which is kind of a, a liquid volume measurement of water. And every sacrifice has to be a certain amount of years old. You know, the, 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 the lambs in their first year and the rams in the second year and the bulls in the third year. Everything has a specific number. Even tzedakah, which is the, the subject of so many letters that we're learning in this book, also has a number. Legally, halachically, uh, the average Jew should give 10% of his income. If you want to do the mitzvah in a choice way, you give 20%. But there's a cap. And the Alter Rebbe says, this seeming detail and limitation that's imposed on the mitzvahs is there for a reason. It has a great purpose. And the purpose is to create the finite reality that's going to go into harmony with the infinite reality. There's a reason why Hashem has the mitzvahs be so defined. It's because that's where He wants His infinity to be accessed. <clears throat> Let me say it in another way that's not said in the Tanya, but it's in other discourses you have it this way. There's a very big difference between the limitation that we observe in the world and the limitation of mitzvahs. The limitation that we observe in the world says this much and not more. My chair can only occupy this amount of space and not more. Mitzvahs, 
They don't limit in the same way. Their limitation says God is going to compact his entire essence into this little space. So it's not, you're only going to get a sliver of godliness. You're going to get it all in the lulav. You're going to get it all in the matzah. It's called hagbalah atzmit in, in Kabbalistic vernacular. It means Hashem can contract his, the entirety of himself in a limited space. And that's why the details matter so much because they're vehicles to complete transcendence. In 1969, uh, shortly after the moon landing, there was, um, I don't remember this program, but apparently there was a big radio talk show host named Barry Farber in, in New York. Or some, I don't know where he was based out of. I think he was in New York. And he ran a very popular show. And there was a Chabad rabbi from Tennessee, I believe, Rabbi Posner, who went on this show. And the, the host was interviewing him about, about Torah. And he said, you know, I don't understand why the laws of Shabbat are so intricate. And you get lashes or stoned to death for a tiny little violation of some small little detail of some little halacha. And the rabbi, he tried to explain it as best he could. And he said, you know, it's very complicated to get punished and by Jewish law. We make it very hard process. The witnesses have to see him in the moment and they have to warn him and he has to act on the warning within three seconds. And so the whole, it would never really come to that. The Torah puts a very severe punishment on it so you stay away. But really, the Torah is very merciful and doesn't really end up giving those punishments. That's kind of what, the way he wiggled out of the question. He didn't know, but the Rebbe was listening to the interview. And the next time the Rebbe came out to a Fabrengen, the Rebbe made known where he stood on this interview. And he said, I don't like what the rabbi said. Because even if you defend it, that it couldn't happen in certain cases, but in the end, if that's what Torah says, how do you justify that? And the rabbi says it's a shame that he didn't give the true answer. And the true answer can be learned from current events, which is the moon landing. The rabbi said, you know, imagine how much precision and how much detail went into every single element of that rocket ship that had to go into space. And how every single detail of the astronauts' lives and behavior on that rocket ship was dictated down to the very minutest detail, what they would wear, how they would wear it, when they can go to the bathroom, what they could eat, everything was dictated. It says, imagine if one of the astronauts says, you know what, who, who gives? I, I'm interested in smoking. He just pulls out a cigarette and he lights up. A tiny little, just a little cigarette. Billions of dollars would be blown to smithereens. I mean, it, it's, it's needless to even say. The whole operation, the, the world's eyes are upon it and you just blow it up with a little, what you think is a little thing. So the Rebbe said, I get it. With the space shuttle, everyone can see the consequences of your action. We, you know, but does that change the reality just because we can't see it in mitzvahs? Hashem the ultimate creator of the world put into play exactly the smallest, minutest details. He governed every part of our behavior because that's what's necessary for the rocket ship to reach its goal. And a Yid says, I don't get what flicking a light switch is going to do to the ultimate purpose of creation on Shabbos. 
Yeah, that's the sign of our exile. We can't see it. It used to be times of the temple, you could see with clarity how God was apparent in every single element of the world. And that's the test of our time. But that's the fact that the fact of the matter doesn't change. That the, the, the specifics of Jewish law are there because each part plays a role, an integral role. And a violation of even the smallest thing in the smallest way could have ripple effects in ways that we could never imagine. So the specificity of halacha or of mitzvah, says the Alter Rebbe, is there actually as an indicator of how much God is present inside there because he wants to fit everything of himself into this little thing. He says you got to do it precisely this way because that's the way that holds infinity. That's how I'm available. Otherwise, I'm not available. That's why uh, Torah and mitzvahs assumes this kind of limitation. And in more Kabbalistic terms, Alter Rebbe presents this whole concept. He says it's hinted to in a verse in the very last portion of the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu, on his last speech, before, on the day he passes away, he tells the Jews, you should know that Hashem gave you the Torah. Um, From his right hand, he gave you a fiery law. Now in Kabbalah, right, the right side is always associated with kindness, giving, generosity. Fire is always associated with severity, justice, strictness. So it's a bit odd that Moshe should say the Torah came as a fire from the right hand. Fire should come from the left hand. The right hand should be more giving. Why does the Torah mix the two? Says the Alter Rebbe because of this exact point. At its root, Torah is about giving. At the core, Torah is about making Hashem available in this world. Hashem wants to express Himself. Hashem wants to be there. Hashem wants to be a part of our experience. But the way it manifests is as a fire. It manifests in a very limited, contracted, reduced way because that's the way we fit Hashem into this world. So he's out there to do yimino, right hand acts, but it has to come through the channel of fire. That's the first half of the letter. In the second half, the Alter Rebbe completely shifts gears. And he zooms in on tzedakah in particular. This is another one of those letters that's going to be a fundraising pitch for tzedakah. And he says as follows. What's the purpose of giving tzedakah? Like any mitzvah. We just said it's a way to bring Hashem into this world. Every mitzvah brings Hashem down in a different way. Giving tzedakah brings forth a spirit of Hashem's generosity. We're generous to others. Hashem is generous to the world. But the kind of divine generosity or the kind of response that we elicit through our tzedakah is the kind of divinity that's tailor-made to the world as it is in its limited state. That could only work to sustain the world so long as you, the Jew, stays on the straight and narrow. In other words, if we maintain our Judaism the way it's supposed to be, if we behave in a way that it's aligned with God's will, so then the tzedakah that we give as part of our general commitment to Judaism will do what it has to do to bring 
the response from Hashem. But if you go off the beaten path, a Jew who is not perfect, and I think I speak for everybody when we say that there's no, per- there's no perfect Jews here in Chabad tonight. If we've, got, if we've gone off the narrow path, what we've done is we've created a deficit in the amount of godly energy that's been reaching our world. Hashem programmed every Jew to be a vehicle of himself to the world. If we didn't fulfill that purpose, so now there's, we're in the red. Hashem was expecting me and you to bring him forth in a certain way. We didn't. We didn't show up. So now, we can't turn around and say, you know what, now that I'm getting back on track, um, I want to just keep doing what I could have been doing had I done it right in the first place. That doesn't work. Everybody knows. If you go off on something, let's just talk about something as simple as being fit. So if you begin in a healthy way, then the regimen that you have to go through is fairly limited. And as long as you keep that up, you'll be fine. But if you go to the other side, okay, you start eating wrong or behaving wrong in the ways that don't match your physical fitness the way it's supposed to be. And now you want to get back on track. The diet that worked for the regular guy is not going to work for you. You have to adopt a little more extreme measures in the beginning, at least, so that you can get you know, back to center and then continue going. The Rambam talks about this at length in the beginning of his book about uh, behaviors and, and, and keeping Torah. He says, uh, if someone you know, continues with the way he was born, then certain behaviors will be fine for him. But if someone went away, when he comes back, he's got to come back extra strong. So... The Rebbe says, if we've gone off the path, and we have, the tzedakah that we give has to mirror that. We can't just say, oh, now I'll give tzedakah like a regular guy. No, tzedakah like a regular guy would work for the regular guy. We're not regular guys. We're trying to repair. Not only are we trying to repair, we're trying to restore all the missing godly energy that we didn't bring to the world when we were supposed to. So we have to access a much higher level of God's infinity. He, he frames it in more Zoharic terms. The Zohar says that there's two kinds of kindness. There's worldly kindness and godly kindness. Worldly kindness is kindness that's limited to the world and its, and its um, makeup. Godly kindness is when you want to reach something that's beyond, want to transcend the limitation. So we have to bring down godly kindness if we're off the path and coming back. To bring down godly kindness requires a bit of an over-the-top tzedakah. Just like tshuva in general, by the way. Whenever you, when you're talking about return to Judaism in general, it requires an over-the-top moment. Anybody that's come back, uh, I don't have that, so I can't talk in a personal way, but I speak to people and I, see, I hear from them. People that came back, there's always an over-the-top moment or an over-the-top period, a time when they were behaving in ways that were completely beyond normal, rational behavior because that's how you come back. You can only start the, start the process if you do a jump start in the beginning. So, therefore, the tzedakah that we give has to match that. We have to give extra amounts of tzedakah, much more than we would regularly be used to. And then we could hope that a little bit of this infinite kindness sneaks its way into the human framework and then repairs all the stuff that it has to repair, which it does. And that's why the Talmud says that the, the place where... Um, where Balei Tshuva, where penitents stand, even the greatest of tzaddikim can't stand. Because a tzaddik is born straight. He's, he's always on the right path. 
the Balchuva came back, and since he came back, that means that he infused his service of God with a much higher level of energy. It's a diving board. A diving board. Something more than the regular, and therefore he can go higher. The reason that the Alter Rebbe zooms in on tzedakah, he says, is because I, I can't just talk about tshuva. If I talk about tshuva, tshuva is an emotion. Tshuva is an experience that takes place in your heart. If you don't bind it to something concrete, something physical, the, the amount of godliness you'll bring back will only be commensurate with what you've put in. So you put in your heart, Hashem will reveal Himself within your heart. But you want to bring back, you want to fill that gap that you've created as far as God's relationship goes with the worlds at large. So for that, you have to do an act that the world can understand, which is something physical. And there's nothing more physical than giving charity. Because it's parting with who you are. You've worked for it. You give it to somebody else. Typically, that somebody else has less than you, if not more. If not, in other words, even less, he has nothing. And when you do that, you show the world, and therefore Hashem as well, I'm ready to go over the top. Now you go over the top for me as well. Dr. Rebbe finds this even in the actual word chesed, the word kindness. If you divide it, it's got chet samach, three letters, chet samach dalet. Chet and samach spells chas, which means mercy. The word dalet, when you spell it out, dalet, lamet, taf, dalet, means poor. So the very word chesed communicates what you're doing. Chas, you're having compassion, dal, on the poor. And when you do that kind of chesed, in a way that's beyond your means, Hashem goes beyond His means and repairs and restores all the fragmented energies that you've created or that we've created by not doing what we were supposed to do. And al hammers at home. He says, don't come back. Don't remind me of the law that says I can't give more than 20%, can't give more than 10%. That's all if you didn't do any problematic deeds. That's all if you didn't it caused problems in the spiritual cosmos. But if you did, you're talking about healing your soul. Why should healing your soul be any worse than healing your body? Healing your body, nobody spares any expense. Someone's sick, all the bank accounts fly out, and all the, all the, all the cheshbonot, all the calculations go away. We expend no matter what we need in order to heal our bodies. Healing our soul should be no different. Yeah. But if you give beyond your means, mm-hmm. in essence, you're putting yourself back into a situation where you're giving to those that are poor, and in fact, you're probably going to make yourself go to that place where they're at. Yeah. Is that the I think. Purpose? I think... The author doesn't address it clearly. I think that the, 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 spirit, the spirit of the concept is you know what, what it means for yourself to stretch. We're not talking about emptying your bank account. Now, if you feel that way, sure, go for that. But everyone knows what it means to give tzedakah till it hurts, where you're not putting yourself to be homeless, but you're stretching yourself a little thin and when you do that, that's you being a micro, mini version of infinity. So I think everyone has to find within themselves what that stretch point is. It's not a, 
you know, blanket statement that says, give up your last morsel of bread, go hungry. You understand what I'm saying? So within, within your capacity, be honest enough to stretch. And if you can turn to God and say, hey, I've stretched, and you know I've stretched, you know this is not what I usually do. I'm going over and above, then Hashem says, okay, I'm going, I'm going over, over and above as well. Sure. Where does giving somebody a job who needs uh-huh. or educating them or training them on something, where does that stand in the, uh, in the level of the, of the tzedakah? It's the highest level. So, it's the highest form of tzedakah. Yeah, that's what I've heard. So, does the author really mention that? He doesn't, but the reason is, is because he was specifically talking about certain causes where that wasn't an option. Okay. He was funding communities living in Israel. In, this, in the case of this letter, there's actually a fascinating piece of history that I'll go into in a second, what he was collecting for. Um, and in those cases, it simply wasn't an option of giving them a job. But certainly if that option is open... That's the highest level because you're putting them on their feet. But that's, that's a, you know, listen, even if it doesn't hit the heart in that way, but everybody can acknowledge that we have to put in a little more to heal our souls. Yeah. If we put in that much to heal our bodies, we can put in a little more to heal our souls. Yeah. And that's his point. It, it, there's a, a verse in the Megillah of Eicha, Lamentations, that we read on Tisha B'Av, uh, that this letter is centered around. It says, Chazdei uh, Hashem kilotamnu. Literally, it means the kindness of God never ceased. All throughout our suffering, the kindness of God never stopped to exist. But grammatically, if you look at the words, it means actually the kindness of God because we, we are not complete. The word tamnu means tamim, complete. We need Hashem's kindness because we are not complete. That's the homiletical interpretation of the verse. And the Alter Rebbe says, the wording is very specific. We need Hashem's kindness. Remember I said before, there's the worldly kindness and the godly kindness. Because we're not complete, because our souls are lacking, we need not regular kindness. We need godly kindness. We can't suffice with regular tzedakah. We need to go over the top and do the godly type of tzedakah so that we can be assured that everything is, everything is in the right place. And the Alter Rebbe says, the Talmud makes a statement. <clears throat> Two statements, actually. One, it says, Jews will only be redeemed with tzedakah. That's one statement. Second statement says, Mashiach will only come when there's no more money in the wallet. That's what it says. Ad shetichle prutaminakis. Righteous Mashiach is only going to come when there's no more money. In Tractate Sanhedrin. It's in the Talmud. And the Alter Rebbe explains this to me. And he says, what does it mean that Tzedakah brings the redemption, and specifically when there's no wallet, there's no money in the wallet. What it means is exactly this. When there's no money in the wallet, that's when people have a, have a tendency not to give tzedakah, right? You say, I got no money. That's when you have the biggest excuse not to give tzedakah. So the author of it says, that's what the Talmud is saying. When there's no money in the wallet, and yet Jews give tzedakah, when they're not commanded to by law, they don't have to. There is no money. And yet you say, I'm going to find a way, somehow, some form, to give tzedakah, that brings the redemption. Because what is redemption? That's what it's all about. Hashem's infinity becoming apparent in the world. 
How do you get that? By being an infinite version of yourself. Reaching higher than your own self-imposed limitations. And so that's the Alter Rebbe's call for people to reach deep into their pockets and give tzedakah. In the, le- in the concluding part of the letter, it's not printed in the Tanya, Alter Rebbe goes a lot more specific. Apparently, I'm not very familiar with this story, but apparently in the fall of... 1790, there was a group of 30 Jews that were arrested. Some of them even with good reason, it sounds like, when you examine the documents. Some of them with good reason, but not all of them. 30 Jews were, were arrested and, and they were going to be basically, if left to their own, they would, they would die. And the Alter Rebbe spearheaded a campaign to free them. And what he did was, out of character, he sent a letter to all his followers and he named an amount that he wanted each of them to give. He didn't just say give. He named families and amounts. And he said, I I know this is over and above, but we must free these captives. There's nothing higher than that in the Torah than to redeem people that are in captivity. Three times he did a campaign, a fundraising campaign. In, in 1791, and then in the summer of 1791, and then in 1793 again. And this letter that we're studying is, he wrote, wrote in 1794, a year after. And he says, I know that I've been terribly demanding these last three years, where I, I, I basically forced, I told you guys, to give amounts that were beyond your capabilities. And I'm asking again, because we need to finish this campaign, and he did. He was able to free them in the end, all of them, with this money. And he said, uh, I'm asking you to, 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 to dig deep. And I'm asking you, the author Rebbe says, that when the person who comes to collect money comes to your, knocking on your door, don't use the excuse of uh, some of the people are not home now, so we don't have to give for the whole family. The amount that I wrote in your letter, that's the amount that you give. And he says, I don't want to go there. But if, if I find out that someone didn't give, be warned. He doesn't say what the consequences are. He says, be warned. Something's going to come. He, didn't, he doesn't specify. And uh, on the other hand, if you do listen, great blessings are going to come upon your head. And with that, you know, he closes the letter. And obviously his campaign was successful because these Jews ended up going back home to their families. And, you know, it's incredible. That's what he demanded. He wanted everybody to give beyond their means. And like I said, many times in these classes, he did it himself. When he had that dowry at his wedding, he gave it all away. And uh, that's a man who practices what he preaches, and therefore he can demand it. But the truth remains the same. When we go over the top for Hashem, Hashem goes over the top for us. And we could all use a little bit of Hashem going over the top for us. That's a fact. So anywhere where you are in your life, we, there's always something that Hashem can do more. So, we do a little more, Hashem promises some more in return. L'chaim.